Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Chad, Sister Brittany Hooser. Thank you so much, Sister Amy. And I want to say a thanks to our production team as well. There's so many people that have a hand in putting together the worship service under the direction of the leadership of the Spirit of God. And I appreciate Pastor Chad so thoughtfully and prayerfully organizing our worship the order of our worship, the prayers, the responsive reading, the hymns we sing. Uh, it just blesses my heart to uh, have a part of, of worshiping God in such a careful, prayerful, thoughtful manner. And I hope that it blesses you as much as it does me. Now this morning, you can turn in your Bibles, we'll pick up in the book of Acts, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. Actually, at the very end of chapter 12, where we left off. But before we do, I'd like to take the opportunity to, as, a, as a way of introduction of the message. I would like to read a letter that I received through the Ministries of Grace to You, which is Dr. John MacArthur, a phenomenal Bible teacher, uh, pastor, uh, seminary president, uh, popular speaker. Uh, but he wrote this back in February. And knowing that I was preaching through the book of Acts, this letter caught my attention and I just put it aside for the right opportunity. And, and I feel like this is it. And so listen and let your hearts listen because I believe he says something that resonates with where we are in Acts and then where we are as a culture today. He says, in a recent introductory sermon to the book of Acts, I made some observations about the culture in which early Christians lived. I noted that the environment at the time of the church's birth was not Christian friendly. The world in which the first Christians lived was brutal, totally pagan, openly anti-Christian. There was no affirmation of morality or any sort of cultural Christianity. Every early believers were aliens to everything in the culture. What's more, Christians had no government or governmental advocacy or special protections. And so unrestrained persecution was happening all over the place. Proclaimers of the gospels of the gospel essentially became martyrs. To embrace Christ often meant signing your own death warrant. What was the church doing that caused such resentment, hostile treatment, and persecution? Christians preached the words of Jesus about God becoming incarnate, the bread of heaven coming down. Their message was simple and clear. If you don't repent and believe in Him, you're going to hell forever. They were confronting sin and calling people to deny themselves and become lifelong slaves to a crucified Jew. It was a hard sale. They were preaching a gospel that was deeply offensive both to Jews and Gentiles. As I described the situation facing the early church, I couldn't help but think of how much our own culture has changed in recent decades and how rapidly it is becoming Acts chapter 1. And for that matter, Romans chapter 1. Perhaps like me, you grew up in America when there was widespread cultural Christianity. There was a kind of Christian consensus. To some degree, people understood the church, the Bible, and the gospel. They accepted Judeo-Christian ethnic or ethic. While most people weren't genuine Christians, there was still superficial acceptance or at least tolerance of a cultural Christianity in politics, business, education, and public life. But where are we today? Where is the general acceptance of the tenets of the Bible 
and the Christian values? Where is the influence of the religious right and moral majority? Gone. No more. There's no more cultural Christianity. There is no collective Christian consensus wielding any significant power in this country. In fact, the more biblically that true Christians speak and live, the more they are being labeled as extremist, homophobic, intolerant, and guilty of hate crimes. We are now aliens. And I think we can all foresee a day when being a faithful Christian will cost us or our children dearly in ways we couldn't have imagined just a decade ago. I think we're closer than ever to living in the conditions like the people did in the book of Acts. So is there any good news, you may be asking? Actually, I believe the current situation is good news. For years, I've been concerned by the church's pursuit of cultural change through political and social activities. Large swaths of Christians have placed enormous time, energy, money, and hope in the wrong places. Hand in glove with that thinking, superficial, cultural Christianity has blurred the clear lines between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of, the, of this world and has softened the hard demands of the gospel, making professing Christ easy and without cost. As a result, churches have been filled with highly religious, superficially moral, self-righteous people who don't understand the gospel and are self-deceived about their spiritual, true spiritual state. But now with the facade of cultural Christianity crumbling, true Christianity is starting to stand out in a way it hasn't in our lifetime. Scripture teaches and church history confirms that the body of Christ is more potent and most effective when it simply speaks and lives the gospel without equivocation or apology. With the mask of superficial Christianity gone, I believe the best days for the spread of the true gospel are ahead of us. The gospel advances by personal testimony to Christ, one soul at a time. When the church acts like the church, when shepherds preach scripture and confront error with clarity and boldness, when believers are sanctified, built up, and equipped in the truth, people are saved. And that's when the culture truly changes. Nothing transforms the culture like genuine conversion. I thought those words were so timely as we consider where we are in the culture that surrounds us today and in view of the fact that we are walking through the book of Acts. And so I wanted to share that with you and I hope you will think about those words that Dr. MacArthur uh, has laid out so clearly that I think reflects the nature of the world in which we live and challenges you and me as believers in Jesus Christ to be the real deal and not to fall into this trap to be what the culture says and, and, and pressures us to be. We don't need to reflect the secular culture. We don't need to be politically correct. We need to be authentically Christian. And as you walk with me through the book of Acts, that early church, those early Christians, those early church leaders were convinced that they were different from the world. They made no apologies for that. They didn't attempt to try to blend in to the world. Their heart's conviction was to preach Christ and to reflect what Jesus or who Jesus was. And so now we're chapter 12, as I said, at the very end, verse 25. I want us to start there because previously in the previous message we, we looked at uh, uh, King Herod 
and, and the rampage that he was on, arresting church leaders, killing James, and arresting Peter, and, and was going to have him killed, but we know God intervened divinely and rescued Peter from prison and set him free. And, and in ironic contrast, then, God, in His justice, allowed worms to infest and consume King Herod. What a painful and horrific way to die. And so God had the final word in the matter. In fact, in verse 24 of chapter 12, it says, But the word of God grew and multiplied. In other words, Herod died. The word of God grew and multiplied. And that scene has been played over and over and over and over. Secular pagan leaders have risen and they have died and they have fallen and the word of God continues to grow and to be multiplied. Now, in verse 25, just as a clarification, because you maybe remember from chapter 11 that Paul and uh, Saul and Barnabas were given uh, an offering that the early church there in Antioch had taken up to, to provide relief to the church in Judea, the Jerusalem church, during a terrible time of famine. But that's all we heard. Well, probably, historians, biblical scholars say, maybe about two years after Herod's death, they actually took the offering down to Jerusalem, delivered it with words of encouragement from the Gentile church to their brothers in Jerusalem. And so now in verse 25 it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, which was taking the offering. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Mark, the, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're introduced to John Mark just right across the page in your Bible. If yours is a line similar to mine in chapter 12, you'll see reference to John Mark in verse 12 of chapter 12. You remember the big, big prayer meeting they were having for, for Peter when he was in prison? And, and, and they obviously had to, to be in a place where they could all be together. And it says in verse 12, so when they, uh, he had, con- had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Some commentators believe that John Mark probably came from from money. His mother probably was wealthy to own a home uh, that was big enough to to encompass all of those believers in one big prayer meeting and to have a servant. She probably was a woman of means. So therefore, John Mark probably grew up with some degree of wealth. We'll, We'll make that assumption and I think it will help you to understand John Mark is a player and you'll find him in, throughout the book of Acts, but in the message this morning, you'll also see where he fits in too. And so they, they leave Jerusalem having delivered the, the uh, offering, but they're also taking with them this young Christian man, John Mark. And so now we're, they're, they're returning to Antioch. Saul and Barnabas are returning to Antioch. We pick up in chapter 13, verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, There were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who uh, had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, in in that verse we see Barnabas and Saul, we know them, but nothing's really said about the other three men. But the thing that I want to see is now we're going to enter into a phase of Acts. In fact, we're going into the third and final division of the book of Acts and, and this is focusing on the, the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1-8 where Jesus says, hey, you know, uh, you shall be my witnesses 
both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And the church is poised, as I shared with you last time, is poised to move forward into the Gentile world. So from here on, you're going to see transitions taking place in the scripture, reflecting transitions that are taking place in the early church. Listen, the church was never designed or created or inspired by God to be in a rut. The church has always been a dynamic organism, if you will, a body, a living, breathing body, the body of Christ. And therefore, it's always changing. We should never settle for going through routines and rituals and settling to be in in a rut. And you don't see that in the church Uh, that early church. They're constantly changing as the demands before them change to fulfill the mission that God has given them. So the first thing I want us to focus on is they are commissioning their first missionaries. And it's very interesting as we look at the commissioning of the first missionaries of the church that God is using the church at Antioch. And so we see that that in the church at Antioch, God has raised up certain prophets and teachers. And these were men that were given gifts by God to be able to prophetically speak forth the word of God. They didn't speak doctrinally as the apostles did. But what they did was they taught the word of God and expounded upon the word of God as it had already been revealed. And they uh, taught and encouraged the people in the word of God. And so in the, this group of men that were gathered there, they possess, some of them possess the gift of, of prophecy. And let me just explain. Prophecy can encompass two manifestations, actually. And we've already seen that in, in some ways, such as here. These men were simply anointed by the Spirit in a special way to speak forth in a very powerful way the Word of God, a convincing way the Word of God to help people to to lead the, the Christian life. Now, we've already seen yet another manifestation of the gift of prophecy. And, and keep in mind, these are all the sign gifts. This is all under the umbrella of those sign gifts that would eventually uh, go away. They would eventually subside as the scriptures canonized. But in the midst of those sign gifts, there were those that had prophet, prophecy. And we saw a man, remember back in chapter 11, a man with the gift of prophecy by the name of Agabus. Agabus had the, uh, the ability to foretell. Oftentimes we think of prophecy as someone who's able to speak of future events taking place. And that was, that was the gift that he had. These men are speaking forth the word of God in an authoritarian way in the church. And so here we have the, the Holy Spirit is establishing a church and also at the same time elevating a leader. Now I said that the church at Antioch, is, it's interesting that God would choose to use the church at Antioch and not the church in Jerusalem to launch his first missionaries. And, and so uh, this is a distinguishing mark of the church. In fact, the, the church at Antioch may be thought of, you may think of it as the beachhead of Christianity. As, as Christians are being, being prepared by God to launch out, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, then you can see that. But also God is not only raising up a church to lead in this missionary endeavor, but as we see in the scriptures, he's also raising up a leader. He's elevating a leader. And you're going to see transition taking place. And I'm talking about primarily here, Saul of Tarsus. He's going to become the preeminent key leader in the church, whereas Peter was in in the past up until this point. So you're going to see 
whereas in the in, in previous chapters it oftentimes talked about Peter and John, Peter and John. Now more and more you're going to see Saul, or, or rather Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, and and eventually you're going to see even the order that is uh, in reference to that that pair began to transition too as Saul will begin to take the lead role and then it will begin to refer to them as Paul and Barnabas. But just remember, God has got a purpose. He knows what He's doing. When He's talking about sending uh, Saul and Barnabas out to, to carry the good news of the gospel to the mission world, let me remind you, or you may want to just turn back just a couple pages in your Bible just to remind you, refresh you, in chapter 9 and verse 15. Do you remember when Paul... Saul at that time had his conversion experience. He was blinded. Uh, he was taken into the city of Damascus. And he was all alone. And God sent a man, a Christian man, Ananias, there to, to confirm Paul's calling. And, and look in chapter 9, verse 15, what God says to Ananias, or Jesus says to Ananias, when he is, he's, he's protesting, he's afraid to go to Saul of Tarsus. And, and God said in in Chapter 9, verse 15, he told Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Now that was the calling that God had for Saul of Tarsus. That was a purpose. And the time is now. And so as we look here in chapter 13, uh, pick up with me in verse 2. These prophets we just looked at, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So the Holy Spirit has established a missionary church. He's raising up His key missionary leader. And the Holy Spirit is now leading the church and sending forth its first missionaries. And I want you to see the emphasis. Who's doing the calling? God is. He's not asking the church to, to, to call the missionaries. The, the church leaders don't call the missionaries. God is calling them. Every time it talks about the Holy Spirit. Folks, who is the Holy Spirit? God. He's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Christ. And so God is, is, is setting apart and He is electing those that will be His missionaries. So it's God who is calling. He announces His call on Barnabas and Saul. And I think it's significant for us to remember that. You know, I, I read, I think Jan was reading to me something she uh, found that, uh, and I've heard this before, statistics that indicate uh, every year, hundreds, hundreds of, of pastors uh, and other ministers leave the ministry. They abandon the ministry. And I, I, you know, certainly, I understand that, that the, 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 the life of a pastor and a, a minister can be stressful and it can have its headaches and heartaches amongst the celebrations and the joys. It can be a tough calling. And I believe that one of the reasons that so many of the, those that leave the ministry, I think they finally find out they really weren't called at all. Not by God. 
Sometimes I believe that you know young men may get caught up in the emotions of, of movements or what have you. Or maybe mama wants them to be a preacher or daddy wants them to be a preacher. Or you know maybe they've got a group pressure mark, church pressure. And, and they'll, they'll go into the ministry but not having been called by God. And I'll tell you something, along the way you'll discover if this is really a true calling because it's only through the strength that God gives and His presence that that enables you to stay in the ministry. You have to know that you're called and to be able to to hang in there. but, but, But Saul and Barnabas knew they were called. The church knew that God was calling them. And so not only did he announce his call on the lives of two specific men, Barnabas and Saul, but he also moved the church to partner with them. And how do we know that? Because of what it says in verse 3. Then, this is the church, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. We've done that. When we have embarked upon volunteer missions trips, whether that be to Detroit or to Alaska or Mexico or Kenya, We've done that. We've taken those individuals that have stated that they felt God leading them to go on these mission trips. We had them stand or kneel here at the front of the church and we've laid hands on uh, those uh, individuals. That's not an ordination. This was not an ordination service. Only the apostles had the authority to ordain. But this was a gesture of partnering. When the church surrounded Saul and Barnabas and laid hands on them and prayed over them just as we would lay hands on our church members who are are following a call to missions. Listen, the church is saying we are with you in this. We may not be going with you physically, but we are with you in spirit. We are with you in support. You can count on us wherever you are. That's why it was so meaningful for us a few months ago, when uh, Amy Basto-Cox, our missionary to Liberia or, or, or Western Africa, you know, she came. She wasn't asking for money. You know, of course, she would probably welcome any support you want to give her along the way. But, but you know what she was asking for? That sweet young lady, she was asking for us to join with other churches in partnering with her. To, you know, and I've given you prayer cards, her prayer card, and every time that you lift up her name to God and you call upon the Lord to watch over and protect her, as Pastor Tim did in our supplication prayer just a minute ago, listen, that's what it means to partner. It's to buy into what God is doing in their lives and say, we are with you. And so when the church laid hands on them, they were saying, we are your partners in this great missions endeavor. And they sent them on their way. Now, that would be hard because that was their pastoral staff going right there. You may recall when the church first organized at Antioch, Saul and Barnabas were the primary pastors. They were the teachers. They were the ones that were leading the church. And now the church is saying, yeah, we're going to let you go because God has called you. And they gave their full support. So we see the commission of the first missionaries. But folks, it doesn't take long. For trouble to get stirred. Anytime you determine that you're going to focus on doing God's work. And you're going to be faithful in doing God's work. I promise you it won't be long. I don't mean to be doom and gloom. I don't want to be the one that throws the cold water on the party. But let me tell you something. It won't be long that you will run into opposition. And sometimes that opposition may come real close to home. It may be some of your family members. It may be friends. It may be co-workers. But the fact is 
the adversary is not going to sit back. So after looking at the commissioning of the first missionaries, I want us to move further as we look at verse 4 and on at the confrontation with the forces of evil. Saul and, and Barnabas are on their way. So let's pick up in verse 4 in chapter 13. So being sent out by, his, by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, which is a port city on the Orontes River, which is the river coming down from Antioch, going out to the Mediterranean Sea. So they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, which incidentally is, is Barnabas' home land. So then he's kind of going back home to spread the word. And when they arrived in Salamis, they, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. There's John Mark again. And you know it's interesting because Paul helps us to see in Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 that Barnabas and, and John Mark are cousins. So there's a family tie there. And you're going to see how this plays out in the, the missions partnership of Barnabas and Saul. John Mark will come up again. But anyway, they got John Mark. He's not one of the commissioned missionaries, if you will, but he is an assistant. He's assisting them on the way. Verse 6. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. I thought it was interesting because his name means son of salvation, ironically. And he is a false prophet. He is a sorcerer. He's a dabbler in darkness, if you will. In fact, his, his, um, his Greek, uh, or Greek name, uh, Elimus, was taken from the word magic, magician, and all of that. But anyway, here's this false prophet, Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul or governor, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, and you'll notice the transitions. This is the time when you'll see Saul's name begin to, uh, his, his name Saul will, will, will drop by the wayside. He'll start using the name Paul. And, and one of the reasons is because now his, his, his audience, if you will, the people that he's ministering to and preaching to are primarily Romans. They're primarily Greek Romans. And, and so he's, he's leaving behind his Saul, which is a Jewish name, which certainly would appeal to Jews. But now that he's preaching to the Romans, he, and, and Paul is a Roman citizen, folks. So he's got that, that Roman name, and Romans will respond to it more favorably. And so Saul is also called uh, Paul, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 9. He looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. We see this confrontation of, of, of God's servants with the forces of evil. And it still plays out even today. Jesus warned his disciples, even in Luke's gospel in chapter 10, uh, verses 2 and 3, when Jesus says, you know, the harvest is plentiful. 
but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out harvesters into the harvest. But then listen to what Jesus says. He says, Behold. He says, Go your way, but behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Jesus prepared His disciples that there would be encounters, conflicts with the forces of darkness. You know, one of the things that Satan loves to do in hampering the advance of the gospel is to, to cause spiritual blindness to come over people. And he plagues people today with that. Let me take you to 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. You've heard this passage or read it before. But just understand the tactics of the devil. Understand why some people that you attempt to share the gospel with may appear to be so resistant as if it was something they couldn't even see. And that's the reason. The reason is because they've been blinded. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells us, beginning in verse 3, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God, little g, of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You see, Satan works through his agents of darkness to blind the eyes of those that he doesn't want to see the truth. And it happens over and over. And he strategically has placed this false prophet by the name of Bar-Jesus right alongside of pro-council or governor Sergius Paulus. Bar-Jesus is like this, this, this sorcerer, this, this magician, this, this dabbler in darkness, this, this false prophet is like a spiritual parasite that's connected to this important leader. A leader who, that the scripture describes as being highly intelligent and yet he's been, you might say, using that expression, the, the wool has been pulled over his eyes. I am thoroughly convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that Satan is still in the business of planting spiritual parasites in the lives of key leaders. I believe so many of the problems that the world is dealing with today is a result of leaders who are spiritually blinded to the truth. And they function based on that blindness. And the world is thrown into chaos and to wars and, and, and all kinds of atrocities and, and, and hate crimes and things like that. It's because their eyes are being blinded. Satan is still strategically manipulating kings, prime ministers, uh, uh, presidents, congressmen, judges, councilmen. Listen, he's doing it. And he was doing it here. And we see this confrontation. And so as we move forward... As we evangelize our world, as we take the truth of the gospel to our community and beyond, understand, be, be realistic. We are at war. Not, not, with the, not so much with a terrorist organization in Syria or northern Iraq. We're, we're at war right here. We're engaged in spiritual warfare right here. That's why Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 6, he, he said, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might and put on the whole armor of God that you may re be able to resist the evil schemes of the devil. And Paul goes on to say, For we do not war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, 
against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Paul is warning the early church, listen, you're at war. So don't be deceived for a minute, dear brother, dear sister. That just because you're a good person and you live in a nice neighborhood and you feel safe and secure, don't you think for a minute that you are out of Satan's reach. He is going to try to torment you, if not him, one of his evil emissaries. And the more serious that you become about sharing Christ and living the true biblical Christian life and practicing biblical Christianity, I can promise you he'll turn up the thermostat. He'll turn up the heat and the attacks. But the good news is this. Don't leave here intimidated. Please don't. Because the good news is next. You see, just as intimidating as the darkness can be, the light of God's truth always prevails against the devil. He can't, he can't resist it. He cannot fight it. He cannot overcome it. The scripture is replete with wonderful examples of this. And as we look here in verse 9 of chapter 13... Listen, Saul, now Paul, he had no problem confronting the enemy at hand. And I want you to understand, this was the Holy Spirit in Paul that was confronting the evil before him. Paul in his own person was no match for the devil. But he wasn't worried about that. Because you see, he understood what you know uh, God had already told him about being in him. In fact, I like what Paul says about having Christ living in him. What you hear coming out of the mouth of Paul is God speaking to Satan. In verse 10, when he says, Oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting straight ways of the Lord? I like when it said in verse 9 that Paul looked intently at this false prophet. He locked his eyes in on him. And I would submit for your understanding this morning that that was not just Paul looking at Bar-Jesus. I believe the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was looking through the eyes of Paul directly into the eyes of this false prophet and on beyond him, right into the eyes of the adversary and said, you don't stand a chance. And so as we watch Paul confronting him, you see the power of God manifested in him. He was, Paul wasn't intimidated by this, this uh, instrument of Satan. And so in verse 11 he says, Now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. I thought it was interesting, almost ironic, that the, the, the plight of this false prophet resembled Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. You remember when he was going his way to persecute the church, the Christians in Damascus? Do you remember how God, Christ encountered him? Struck him blind. Right off of his horse onto the ground. And what? Here's this great Pharisee, this, this powerful persecutor of the church. He's helpless. And had to be led into the city of Damascus. And now look how God is working as he confronts this false prophet. Listen, the ministry of the gospel is illuminating and liberating. The ministry of the gospel is the light. You and I have the light. And the darkness is no match for the light of God's word. That's why I love Psalm 119, 105, 106, where it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my path. Everywhere we carry the word of God, we've got the light. 
I don't know about those of you, but, but I remember when I was a kid, I was a little bit afraid of the dark. A little bit, you know. And, and so I, I like flashlights. And, you know, and, uh, and it's interesting because I remember my dad laughing not long ago talking about Tim when he was just a little fella and how, you know, Tim would latch onto all of his flashlights. So if you ever missed the flashlight, he'd go look in Tim's room and there would be all his flashlights. But, you know, when you're out in a, a, a place that is enshrouded in darkness and you think about it and your imagination begins to wonder, you know, bears and cougars and all kinds of, you know, critters and things. And, you, uh, uh, you know, to have a flashlight, man, that's like having power because it, you know, kind of illuminates things. That's what the Word of God does. It's a dark and a dangerous world out there, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, it is scary. But, but, we have the light of God's Word that goes with us. I like how John, in describing Jesus in his gospel, we're talking about Jesus coming into the world. He uses that analogy of the light. Listen to how John describes the light of the Word. This is Christ, the Word of God, okay? In chapter 1 of John, in verses 4 and 5, listen to how John describes In Him, speaking of Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome or comprehend it. And then John goes on in that same chapter in verse 9 to say, That was the true light, speaking of Christ, which gives light to every man who comes into the world. We have the light. And also in the Gospel of John, don't miss this. Jesus, in speaking in, uh, uh, among all of his I am statements, speaking of himself, in John's Gospel in chapter 8, listen to what Jesus said about himself. Then Jesus spoke to them, saying again, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, I know the sun was shining. It may not be shining now, but I know when you came in, the sun was shining. It's been a beautiful sunlit uh, weekend and today. And, and, and some of the most beautiful, phenomenal sun, uh, sun brightened days here in the fall just encourage your spirit and all. But listen, don't let that fool you because just as the sun is shining outside, I assure you that we are living in a culture, in a community that is enshrouded in sin and in darkness. And there are people who are groping and finding, trying to find their way through life in spiritual darkness. And that's where God sent Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas out. When they left Antioch, they were going out into a world that was deep in darkness of sin. And many people, like this governor himself, was living in spiritual darkness and had no idea. And many of our close friends, our family members and co-workers and schoolmates are spiritually blind, groping through life in spiritual darkness, ready at any moment to plunge into a precipice of pain and fire and torment and anguish called hell. If ever there was a time that the church needed to be bold in taking the light of the gospel out into the darkness of sin, now is that time. Things aren't getting better out there. Things are getting worse. There's more darkness. There's more evil. There's more sin. And the time is now. Paul and Barnabas were doing their part right here in Acts chapter 13. Look at the result. We talked about the commissioning of the first missionaries, the confrontation with evil, but now I want to focus your attention as we close on the conversion of a Roman governor. You know, I thought it was interesting. All, as they trekked all the way across the island of Cyprus, preaching 
going into the synagogues, which was Paul's pattern as we follow in the book of Acts, you're going to see one of the first places he goes when he enters into a new area is go right to the synagogue because the Jews are there. And in the synagogue is the Old Testament. And Paul would use the base of the Old Testament upon which he would build the truth of the gospel. He would introduce the Messiah, Christ. So that's where he started. But, but I thought it was interesting. All the way across the island of Cyprus, Luke doesn't tell us of one single convert. And sometimes you and I may go out with all diligence and determination and, and, and seriousness of heart and prayed and we may share the gospel, we may share the gospel, we may knock on doors and, and one after another after another and nobody respond. It happened to Paul. It happened to the best. Not every venture that Paul entered into ended up being a conversion. But the thing is, God took him directly to the person that he needed to make sure heard the truth of the gospel. And that was this governor. And he was living in spiritual darkness. The proconsul was impressed by God's power and his word. Look at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He saw. And he heard. That's our witness. It's what we say. It's what we speak. And make sure when you're speaking, you're speaking the Word of God. Make sure that you're sharing the objective truths of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Make sure that when you go and God creates an opportunity for you to encounter someone who is living in spiritual darkness, that you've got the light. The Word of God. Because people are hungry for the Word of God. Look at verse 7. Talking about the governor. This man, it says, uh, well, this is talking to the proconsul who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the Word of God. There was already planted in this man by the Spirit of God a longing a hunger. He wanted to know. Maybe word had got ahead of them that these guys are teaching something different. These guys are teaching something powerful. These guys are teaching something significant. And he invites Saul and, 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 and Barnabas to come. So there's that hunger. Ladies and gentlemen, you, people that you may work with, people you may go to school with, people you may live around, people in your family may give a facade of saying, I don't want anything to do with religion. But even people like that, those who are hard towards the things of God, you don't know that deep in their soul there is a God-planted hunger that is yearning to find the truth. I'm convinced. I am. I'm convinced that, that, that Muslims are seeking for the truth. Hindus are seeking for the truth. Buddhists are seeking for the truth. Atheists are seeking for the truth. Humanists are actually seeking for the truth. They may not admit it, but there is a void deep down in their heart to want to know the actual truth of the Word of God. If God puts it there, it will continue to, to gnaw at them. And God puts His Word on the hearts just as He puts that hunger in the hearts of people that are lost. Listen, God will put His Word on your heart. 
When God was sending Moses to, to Pharaoh to tell him, let my people go. And you remember Moses was giving excuses and he was stammering and talking about, oh, you need to send Aaron. And, you know? and, and in Exodus chapter 4, verse 12, I love this verse. God simply said to Moses, get out of here. I'm paraphrasing. Just go on. He says, you know, go on. He says, I will teach your mouth what to say. I will give you. Moses, just go. And I'll put the words on your lips. Jesus, in preparing His disciples, in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 10, listen to what He said. This is before His crucifixion, His resurrection. But listen to what Jesus says. He says in verse 18 of chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel, He's telling His disciples, And you will be brought before governors and kings for My sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. In verse 19, But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. Now, does that mean you don't need to study your word? Sure you need to study your word. Does that not mean I need to, 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 to learn some Scripture by memory? Sure, that, that always is a good thing. But you don't know, given from one situation to another situation, exactly the details of every circumstance. But I promise you, God does. If you go and you make yourself available and you pray and you trust the Lord, He will give you the words to say to open up the eyes of that person to help them to come to Christ if it is His will for them. And let me say this, people around us will be impressed not just with the words you say, but with the Christ they see in you. I believe this proconsul, as he listened to Paul, and not only just as he listened, as Paul just, you know, confidently and, and solidly and, and, and with, with passion shared the truth of the gospel, but I think he was watching this Paul, this Christian, and he saw in him Christ. You know, I think about what Jesus says about over in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. He says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus talked about people seeing as well as hearing. You know, Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So when, when Paul was out there, people heard him, people saw him, but people saw more than just this Jew who was telling about Jesus. They saw Christ in him. Very much like in Acts chapter 4. You remember when John and Peter were arrested? They were standing before the Sanhedrin. And, and you know, the Sanhedrin was trying to, they're scratching their head. These, these guys are uneducated. They're backwards. They're fishermen. Yeah, and, and so they're trying to comprehend what it is that makes them so different. And in verse 13 of Acts chapter 4, we, we saw this before. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's what makes them different. They've been with 
Jesus. It's all over them. They're infected with Jesus Christ. And that's why when they threatened Peter and John and said, look, don't you go preaching this Jesus anymore. They threatened them. And I believe that they probably meant their threats. And what did Peter say? Oh, yes, sir, yes, sir. I'm so sorry. You won't see us again. That's okay. Peter says, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight or not to obey you or God. But listen to what he said. But we can't help. We can't help. Do you hear what he's saying? It's like telling your dog, don't bark when a cat comes in the yard. Or You know, listen. Peter and John says, listen, you judge for yourselves, but we can't help. We've got to tell him. It's in us. He's in us. And he's coming out. And that's what a witness is. It's being, these men were filled with the Spirit of God. They were filled with Christ. And He spoke through them. He ministered through them. Ladies and gentlemen, the fields are white under harvest all around us. People look content. They look satisfied. They look like they're all put together well and happy. But let me tell you, most of the people who are living around us don't know Jesus Christ. They are headed towards a Christless, hopeless place called hell. They need to hear the gospel. The harvest is plentiful, but the harvesters are few. Listen, we need to go our way. As we go, we need to be like Barnabas and Paul. We need to be quick to share the truth of the Word. We need to be quick to shine the light of the Gospel into the darkness of the lives of people that desperately need to hear the truth. But we need to make sure that our lives reflect the One we profess to love. Let people see Christ in you. Let them... That's why I think as we do evangelism, it's important that we build relationships. Take time to get to know your neighbors. Let them see that you are a follower of Christ. Let them see the characteristics of of a Christ-led life, a Spirit-led life. I believe it's what you say and what they see in you that will win their hearts to Jesus.